Joshua chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. Treat Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king, except that you may plunder its spoil and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and all the troops set out to attack Ai. Joshua selected 30,000 of his best soldiers and sent them out at night. He commanded them, pay attention, lie in ambush behind the city, not too far from it, and all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. When they come out against us, as they did the first time, we will flee from them. They will come after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us as before. While we are fleeing from them, you are to come out of your ambush and seize the city. The Lord your God will hand it over to you. After taking the city, set it on fire. Follow the Lord's command. See that you do as I have ordered you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the ambush site and waited between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But he spent that night with the troops. Joshua started early the next morning and mobilized them. Then he and the elders of Israel led the people up to Ai. All the troops who were with him went up and approached the city, arriving opposite Ai, and camped to the north of it, with a valley between them and the city. Now Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. The troops were stationed in this way, the main camp to the north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city. And that night Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw the Israelites, the men of the city hurried and went out early in the morning so that he and all his people could engage Israel in battle at a suitable place facing the Arabah. But he did not know there was an ambush waiting for him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten back by them and fled toward the wilderness. Then all the troops of Ai were summoned to pursue them, and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel, leaving the city exposed while they pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out the javelin in your hand toward Ai, for I will hand the city over to you. So Joshua held out his javelin toward it. When he held out his hand, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position. They ran, entered the city, captured it, and immediately set it on fire. The men of Ai turned and looked back, and smoke from the city was rising to the sky. They could not escape in any direction, and the troops who had fled to the wilderness now became the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that smoke was rising from it, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then men in ambush came out of the city against them, and the men of Ai were trapped between the Israelite forces some on one side and some on the other. They struck them down until no survivor or fugitive remained, but they captured the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing everyone living in Ai who had pursued them into the open country, and when every last one of them had fallen by the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the sword. The total of those who fell that day, both men and women, was 12,000, all the people of Ai. Joshua did not draw back his hand that was holding the javelin until all the inhabitants of Ai were completely destroyed. Israel plundered only the cattle and spoil of that city for themselves, according to the Lord's command that he had given Joshua. Joshua burned Ai and left it a permanent ruin, still desolate today. He hung the body of the king of Ai on a tree until evening, 
And at sunset, Joshua commanded that they take his body down from the tree. They threw it down at the entrance of the city gate and put a large pile of rocks over it, which still remains today. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. There on the stones, Joshua copied the Law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. All Israel, resident alien and citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the Ark of the Lord's Covenant facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the Lord's servant had commanded earlier concerning blessing the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the dependents, and the resident aliens who lived among them. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word and write his eternal truth upon our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are faithful, and we thank you that you have given to us your word and revealed your person and your ways to us, your mighty acts and mighty deeds of deliverance and judgment. And so as we open your word and are given here a reminder of your holy character, the purity of your judgment, the impartiality of it, the righteousness of it, and the priority of worship, we pray that you will give us understanding of what you desire in your people whom you have redeemed. We thank you for this historical account inspired and recorded and kept for us by your Spirit. And we pray that we might understand it even more and draw close to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our study in the book of Joshua, you may recall the people of Israel are now engaged in the conquest of the land of Canaan. They have won a resounding victory at the city of Jericho back in chapter 6. But then in chapter 7, there was a shocking reversal, a humiliating defeat at the next Amorite city as they make their way into the land, the city of Ai. All because of Achan, who stole plunder from the city and kept it for himself, which the Lord had forbidden them to do. So chapter 7 ended with the judgment of God being poured out on Achan and his family. Only then, as chapter 7, verse 26 tells us, did the Lord turn from his burning anger. And now, as chapter 8 opens, at least the problem of sin in the camp has been dealt with. But that still leaves the problem of Ai. The Amorite city remains undefeated. Before they can move on, the Israelites will have to go back and try again. And so... Our passage today sketches out the tactics and the outcomes of the second battle of Ai. And the story is told brilliantly in a dramatic, fast-paced action movie sort of way. All of it concluding like some Hollywood blockbuster epic with a final wide-angle shot of the whole nation gathered after the battle near Shechem in the valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, solemnly worshiping the Lord and renewing their covenant with him. And as we work through this engrossing story, it is tempting to get lost in the details. 
we can focus too much on Joshua's brilliant strategy. We can feel, feel some satisfaction that Israel managed to turn things around and beat Ai on their second go. Right? Everyone loves a comeback story, right? And here is Israel snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. It's great, isn't it? But if we're not careful, we can miss the central message of this story. We can miss the forest for our close study of the trees. So I would submit to you, this chapter is not mainly about Joshua. And it's not mainly about Israel. It's not even mainly about Ai. This is a chapter about God. Joshua 8 teaches us about the character and the ways of God. We're going to notice four themes in particular about the character and ways of God in relation to his people. First, the clarity of God's word. Second, the authority of God's command. Third, the severity of God's judgment. And fourth, the priority of God's covenant. And so those are the themes that we're going to consider as they come to us from Joshua chapter 8. And the main point that I want us to see and believe this morning is this. God must be worshipped and obeyed as the source of every blessing and victory. We see that all throughout this narrative. And so first, I want us to see the clarity of God's word. Verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. Treat Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king, except that you may plunder its spoil and livestock for yourself. Set an ambush behind the city. Well, there is something altogether beautiful about this opening verse. I imagine Joshua's feeling a little discouraged. The city of Ai had failed to be taken. Some of his men had been killed. And there had been this incident with Achan and his sin. They had taken Achan and his family outside and stoned them to death. And so imagine he was a discouraged leader at this point. And how welcome, then, to hear these words repeated now for the third time in the book to Joshua. Do not be afraid or discouraged. And I wonder if that might be all you will take away from this message. That no matter what else you may make of the revelation of God in this chapter, and it is grim, whatever else you may draw about the character of God, don't lose sight of the way God ministers to his servant, Joshua, at the beginning of this chapter. He says to him, do not be afraid, and do not be discouraged. How marvelous that God can be this kind of God who knows about our discouragement and speaks a word of comfort. This God who said in the aftermath of the setback of Ai, it's because you yourself have sinned against me, now says, but now do not fear and do not despair. My fierce anger is removed. It's been atoned for, and I will be with you. This is a mercy from God. But then he gives them a word of direction. Joshua is to take all the men of war with him and go again to Ai. The conquest is to continue. They're to move forward. They're not to stay stymied. And so I think one of the key lessons for us is to see how God relates to his people with the clarity of his direction. Now, God doesn't take Israel into the land and then just leave them in the dark about what they should do. They just figure it out for themselves. But all along the way, we see God giving his clear direction so that they might be successful in taking possession of the land, just as he had promised. And their job was to listen to God's word and then to respond in faith and obedience. 
And I would argue in terms of God's relationship with us as his covenant people today. That same dynamic is at play. Right? God gives us clear direction for taking possession of our eternal home. He's not left us in the dark in terms of how we are to get there, but gives clear direction for the path to eternal life in his kingdom. Well, isn't that wonderful? And our responsibility then is to hear his clear direction and respond in faith and obedience to what he calls us to do. But you might be thinking, well, yeah, but you know, there are lots of things I wish God would speak to me directly about the way he did to Joshua. I'd love a direct word from the Lord regarding whether or not to take this job, where I should live, whether or not I should get married or get married to this or that person, how I should educate my kids, how I should arrange my schedule and prioritize my time. Does the Lord really give us clear direction in this journey? The answer would be yes. He gives us very clear direction on what we need to know in order to gain our promised eternal home. And think about it. Even with Israel, I'm sure there were many decisions to make within the direction that God had given them. But he did give them all of the explicit direction they needed in order to take possession of the land that he was giving them. And their responsibility, again, was to respond in faith and obedience and wisdom to those commands. And so it is for us today. And of course, this begins with the gospel. Because as sinners, we will never be received into the kingdom of God and our eternal home on the basis of our own righteousness. And if that isn't clear to you, let me tell you, God has made this so clear in his word. And it's by faith in what Christ has done for us. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is God's gift. Not from works, so that no one can boast. So we see God's word of direction. What is required for life and godliness for the people of God? We see it here with Israel, and it continues to be true for God's people today through the Scriptures. God gives clear direction to His people. But notice, God accompanies His word of direction with a word of promise. He gives the promise of victory in verse 1. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. God will give them this city as he gave them Jericho. And it's as if he's saying, you, you have sinned, but the sin has been atoned for, and the promise of victory remains. And then he gives a promise of generosity. The Lord says, Treat Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king, except that you may plunder its spoil and livestock for yourselves. So this time, people will be able to retain the spoils of victory. Recall that everything in Jericho was devoted to destruction. But here, there will be reward from their own labor. You might ask, well, why did he forbid those items from Jericho and set them apart for himself? Well, I would suggest, at least in part, that God was claiming the spoil of Jericho as a sort of first fruit for himself. As a way of reminding Israel in that first battle that everything in the land ultimately belonged to him. It was not theirs to take. It was his to give. And they were to remember that all the way through. And therefore, their hope was not to be primarily in the land itself or in the provisions of the land itself, but primarily in the Lord himself. They were to trust the Lord for his generous 
ongoing provision according to his promise. But as we saw in chapter 7, verse 21, when Achan saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then he coveted them and took them. Coveting is sinfully desiring something that is not rightfully mine. That God has not given to me, such that I then become discontent with God's provision for me. And so rather than trust God's promise and the future fulfillment of God's abundant provision that he said he would give, Achan sinned. And God's judgment fell upon him. What a tragedy. And what irony. Especially when God now says, I am giving everything in the city now for your personal provision and enjoyment. And how foolish and short-sighted Achan's covetousness turns out to be. But how often do we find ourselves thinking, God's holding out on me. You know, if God really loved me, if God were really generous as he claimed to be, if God were really faithful to his promises, surely he wouldn't withhold you fill in the blank. Surely he wouldn't withhold that job or that promotion. Surely he wouldn't withhold that marriage relationship. Surely he wouldn't withhold children from us. Surely he wouldn't withhold good health. And those those desires may not be wrong in and of themselves. They may be, be, be good desires. But as we look on those things and our desires move over into covetousness, we begin to question God's faithfulness, question God's character, question God's generosity. And perhaps we even try to take those things for ourselves in sinful ways. Things that don't rightly belong to us or have not yet been given to us. Perhaps even what God has forbidden. But maybe we're failing to see how God is teaching us to trust Him and not merely His gifts. Perhaps we're failing to see how He's testing and proving the reality of our faith in His promises. Perhaps He's testing us to determine, do we trust that He's not a stingy God? That we trust His character? That we trust that He will provide abundantly? You see, what is right around the corner for everyone who is united with Christ by faith is an inheritance that God's Word says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And for you, it might be right around the corner, like this year. For you or for me, we don't know. For you, it might be right around the corner, like 70 years from now. But for every one of us, it's coming quickly, and it will last forever. So don't be short-sighted. God withholds whatever it is He withholds for our good. And then, along with so many other good gifts in this life, very soon, He will pour out the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness in Christ in the coming ages to everyone who trusts in the Lord. So trust Him. Trust Him for His generosity and His provision for you as one of His people. All that your heart really needs, He will abundantly supply. Philippians 4, verse 19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
to see the clarity of God's word, a word of comfort, a word of direction, and a promise of victory and generosity. Secondly, I want you to think about the authority of God's command. In verses 1 and 2, you'll notice it is God who tells Joshua what to do. Right? The ambush of Ai is all God's idea. And then in verses 3 through 9, Joshua shares the plan. He fills out the details for the troops. Look at it. So Joshua and all the troops set out to attack Ai. Joshua selected 30,000 of his best soldiers and sent them out at night. He commanded them, pay attention. Lie in ambush behind the city, not too far from it. And all of you, be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. When they come out against us, as they did the first time, we will flee from them. They will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us as before. While we are fleeing from them, you are to come out of your ambush and seize the city. The Lord your God will hand it over to you. After taking the city, set it on fire. Follow the Lord's command. See that you do as I have ordered you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the ambush site and waited between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But he spent that night with the troops. So this time, Joshua chooses 30,000 men to go against Ai. Ten times what was taken the first time. They're going to deploy an ambush with the major group of his army, and he's going to approach Ai, and that will be the bait. As they approach, he expects the troops of Ai will come out to engage as before, marked by the very overconfidence that marked Israel in the first engagement. Israel will draw Ai out of the city, and then another force will attack and conquer the now defenseless city, and when the enemy army sees the smoke of the city burning behind them, they'll turn back, and Israel will spring their trap, the army of Ai will be caught between two divisions of the Israelite army. So it's a devastating tactic. But the strategy, the strategy belongs entirely to the Lord. Right? It's his plan, not Joshua's plan. In fact, notice in the middle of giving those instructions, we find the promise. Again, the Lord, your God, will hand it over to you. This is the very emphasis being made in this whole engagement. The battle belongs to the Lord. And then he says in verse 8, follow the Lord's command. Right? See that you do as I have ordered you. Friends, that's what we must do with the promises of God and the commands of God. The Lord is faithful to do what He promises. And so, we must be faithful to trust His promises and to obey His commands. Well, immediately, verses 10 to 13 indicate that Israel obeyed the word of the Lord. This is setting the text. Verse 10 begins with the actual day of battle. Joshua started early the next morning and mobilized them. Then he and the elders of Israel led the people up to Ai. And then the next three verses are really a flashback to what took place the night before, the setting up of the ambush. All the troops who were with him went up and approached the city, arriving opposite Ai and camped to the north of it, with a valley between them and the city. Here's the flashback. Now Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. The troops were stationed in this way, the main camp to the north of the city and its rear guard to the west of the city. And that night, Joshua went into the valley. So we're given the details now. But during the night, the armies of Israel come to this valley between Bethel and Ai. Joshua dispatches 5,000 of the 30,000, stations them to the west of the city, and he stays at the main camp 
you north. So that's the setup. Right? He sets the trap. His army is stationed at Ai's doorstep to feed the bait for Ai. And then in verses 14 to 17, we see they take the bait. Right? Verse 14. When the king of Ai saw the Israelites, the men of the city hurried and went out early in the morning so that he and all his people could engage Israel in battle at a suitable place facing the Arabah. He did not know there was an ambush waiting for him behind the city. Ai wastes no time springing into action. They rise up quickly, rushing to engage the Israelites in battle. But the inspired writer tells us the king of Ai did not know there was an ambush waiting for him behind the city. He sees Israel, but he does not see what God is doing. Now, he sees Israel in front of him, but he doesn't see the ambush behind him. He sees, but he doesn't see. And church, this is how it always goes for the enemies of God. They go to war against God, confident in themselves, confident in the weapons of their warfare, but they are blind to the way that their self-reliance and rebellion is opposed to God and is storing up wrath. And they will be swept away on the day when God returns and strikes them down. Jonathan Edwards famously put it this way, that the wicked hang like a spider over the fires of hell. They weave their web with confidence, seeking to catch others in their traps. They make snares for others, not knowing that they will be hung by their own nooses, not knowing that when the thread of their life will be snapped, that they themselves will fall into the judgment of God. For all the strength that people find in themselves, for all the success that they have, those who have no faith in Christ do not see how God is permitting them to succeed temporarily and to be strengthened because it confirms his justice that will come upon them on that final day. Well, verse 15, Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten back by them and fled toward the wilderness. They proceed according to the plan. Where did they get this plan? Again, the Lord revealed this plan to Joshua. And Joshua to the people of Israel. Now, how often does God pretend to be beaten? Church, don't miss this. God is perfect in his timing, perfect in his justice. He will let the wicked tares of the world flourish in their strength among the wheat. He will let the wolves in their strength prove their wickedness. And here, the wickedness of Ai and, and Bethel is proven by their appetite to pursue Israel. Again, look at verses 16 through 17 and, and the stress that is put on the word pursue. Then all the troops of Ai were summoned to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel, leaving the city exposed while they pursued Israel. And as anticipated, the troops of Ai, probably overconfident that they're going to have the same victory as before, in fact, so confident of a victory that we're told that they called up everybody out of the city to come and help them engage in the pursuit. They swallowed the bait, hook, line, and sinker. In fact, they took it so completely that we're told in verse 17, not a man was left in Ai or Bethel, a neighboring city, who had not gone out after Israel. They left the city wide open. They took the bait, and they took it fully. And their pursuit clarifies why Ai and Bethel deserved to be destroyed. They delighted to shed blood. This is why God's strategy works. This is why God uses this strategy throughout the Bible. Think about the 
story of Esther, right? Haman, the wicked uh, associate, makes gallows to hang the Jews, and he ends up being hanged on them himself. <laughs> God lets his enemies show their true colors before striking them down. And here we see how God is inspired strategy that exposes the wickedness of Ai, and it proves the wisdom and the power of God to save his people and to put his enemies to death. And indeed, these verses invite you and I to consider how we stand before God. Are we hiding ourselves behind Jesus, our King, depending on Him for our protection? Or are we opposing God by fighting for ourselves, fighting against God, even hurting His people? And friends, you can't look at your circumstances to answer that question. You have to look at your heart, your speech, and your conduct of life. Do you trust God's goodness? Do you love God's people? Do you submit to God's rule? Or do you live for yourself? This is how we know our standing before God. It does not depend on what you see around you or what you see in your life. It depends upon God and His Word and whether you believe in the Gospel and whether you have been transformed by faith in Christ. How do you stand before the Lord and before His Word? Ai has been tested. They have been drawn out by their thirst for blood. And all that's left now is to spring the trap. That's verses 18 through 22. And what the narrator wants us to see is who springs the trap. It is the word of God. Verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out the javelin in your hand toward Ai, for I will hand the city over to you. In other words, the victory is not the sword of Joshua. The victory is the Lord who gives the victory. This is the picture being given to us. The outstretched weapon was more than just a signal for the, for the ambush to engage. It was the signal of the presence and the power of God. Verse 19, so Joshua held out his javelin toward it. When he held out his hand, the men in ambush rose quickly from their position. They ran, entered the city, captured it, and immediately set it on fire. Joshua was signaling the beginning of the end for Ai and the beginning of victory for the people of God. And then continuing on in verse 20, the men of Ai turned and looked back. The smoke from the city was rising to the sky. They could not escape in any direction. And the troops who had fled to the wilderness now became the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the men in ambush had captured the city and that smoke was rising from it, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then men in ambush came out of the city against them. And the men of Ai were trapped between the Israelite forces, some on one side and some on the other. They struck them down until no survivor or fugitive remained. They captured the king of Ai alive and brought him to Joshua. Those who were at one time prey now take and make Ai their prey. There was a complete slaughter in the field. And it was the mighty hand of God delivering Ai into the hand of Joshua and Israel. And so here's the point. God sets the plan. God tells Joshua, when the fire to start is quickly. And they don't stop until God's purpose is completely fulfilled. What is the lesson? Isn't it that if we are to be sure of the power of God, we must first be sure to submit to the rule of God. If we are to be sure of the power of God, the blessing of God, the favor of God, we must submit to the authority of God. God is in command. This is a strategy for successful conquest, for a faithful and fruitful life must be His and not ours. 
He gives the marching orders. He is the commander-in-chief, your commander-in-chief. And so we see the authority of God's command. We must submit to His rule. You are not in charge, not even in your own heart. He is. Thirdly, we see the severity of God's judgment. Verses 24 and 29 take us into the city. And here the rest of Ai is devoted to destruction. And the king is hung on a tree. Verses 24 to 25 give us the sober summary. When Israel had finished killing everyone living in Ai who had pursued them into the open country, and when every last one of them had fallen by the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the sword. The total of those who fell that day, both men and women, was 12,000. All the people of Ai. Here is the butcher's bill. Ai was not a large city, but that whole city fell under God's judgment. And what is interesting as we read about that defeat and the nature of it and the character of it, we're informed in verse 26, Joshua did not draw back his hand that was holding the javelin, until all the inhabitants of Ai were completely destroyed. You may recall in Exodus 17, when the people of God were coming out of Egypt, they were attacked from the rear by the Amalekites. And the staff of God that Moses held up in his hand, as long as he held it up, the army of Israel was defeating the Amalekites. But when his hand went down, the Amalekites prevailed. And so his hand was held up until the victory was secured. And here's another picture of the power of God and Joshua himself under the direction of God. A new Moses, as it were, the one who held his hand up until the slaughter was complete. But this doesn't mean that Joshua defeated Ai for God. Rather, God won the battle for Israel through Joshua as he obeyed God and kept his hand raised. And here again, brothers and sisters, we get glimpses of the relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father. When Jesus defeated the enemies of God on the cross and won salvation for his people, he did so in complete obedience to the Father. Hebrews 5, 8-9 says, Although he was the Son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. After he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So we see Israel's obedience in verse 27 as they plundered only the cattle and spoiled that city for themselves according to the Lord's command that he had given Joshua. And then verses 28 to 29 conclude the battle scene. Joshua burned Ai and left it a permanent ruin, still desolate today. He hung the body of the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded that they take his body down from the tree. They threw it down at the entrance of the city gate and put a large pile of rocks over it, which still remains today. So you have this picture of a solemn, permanent monument of the awful gravity and severity of God's judgment on sin. This is the hand of God. This was the will of God. This was the awful, horrifying judgment of God against sin. He's taken out this sinful city. This is the very reality that is to be brought to our minds. Yes, the Lord himself is impartial in his judgment. He will judge his own people, as he did in chapter 7. 
but he will also judge those outside his people. That is his, that is his work as well. God judges all, and he judges his people. And this is a judgment that is not to be taken lightly. In fact, we see the impartiality of God by comparing the end of Joshua 7 to the end of Joshua 8. At the end of Joshua 7, right, God tells Israel to remember the death of Achan by piling up rocks over his dead body. And here we see the same at the end of Joshua 8. A pile of rocks stands over the dead body of Ai's king. And in this parallel, we, we see how God's judgment is, is not ethnocentric in any way. Rather, because of sin, all humanity, a Jew and Gentile, stand under the judgment of God. In Joshua 7, Israel serves as the judicial court, stoning Achan to death because of his sin. And here in Joshua 8, Israel's soldiers do the same for the sins of Ai. But before they do that, we read that Joshua hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening, and at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and then raised a heap of stones over it. Now why do they do that? We need to consider how the original audience would have understood this. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, while Moses says that if a man is hung on a tree, he is cursed by God. And it says he must be taken down at night so that his sin does not pollute, ceremonially defile the land. And so they hang him on a tree as a public warning to those who would live in rebellion against God. And this hanging proves his guilt. And at the same time, the king stands as a representative for his entire nation. And so his hanging signifies that he and all who were under his rule had come under God's curse. Now, when we use the language of curse, we might think of something like a magical spell. But this is just another way, the Bible's way of saying that they came under God's judgment because of their sin. The death and the display of the body of the king of Ai on the tree is meant to remind us. It's meant to signal to us and to all who saw it that what has happened here is an expression of the wrath and the curse and the judgment of God. This is divine judgment being executed. Now, importantly, the Deuteronomy 21 passage is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 5, verse 30. Acts 10, verse 39. And Galatians 3, verse 13. In all three places, actually, it speaks to us about the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross, we are to understand, is a kind of cursed tree on which Jesus was hanged for our sake. So Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, we may have no problem with the cursed tree of Calvary. There, Jesus is hanging in our place. That's what we deserve. And yet, He bears the penalty for us. But still... We may find our hearts taking issue with the cursed tree of Joshua, 8.29, where the wrath and curse of God falls on someone else. But we can't have it both ways. If we are to be biblical Christians, we must come to terms with the fact that our God is the God of absolute judgment. He doesn't weak at sin. He doesn't excuse it or turn a blind eye to it or pretend it didn't happen. Not for the Canaanites, not for the king of Ai, not for you, 
Not for me. The curse of God's judgment must fall, will fall, either on us, as it fell on Ai's king, or it must fall on Jesus, the king of kings. Hang on a curse tree. So we see the severity of God's judgment. And incredibly, as we leave that bloody battle scene, we go to another scene almost immediately which surprises us. And it's a break in the action. The next thing that happens is a covenant renewal ceremony. That's what I want us to see fourthly and finally, the priority of God's covenant. That's what we have here in verses 30 to 35. This scene seems out of place because it takes place not even near Ai, but 20 miles north in Shechem, a city that's between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And we might ask, why does this gathering take place? But what Joshua is doing as the successor to Moses is he's following the very command that Moses gave to Israel in the plains of Moab before they had crossed the Jordan in Deuteronomy 27. Moses said there, when you enter the land and you cross over the Jordan River, this is what you are to do. You are to do these very things we see here. And Joshua follows it to a T. He obeys everything Moses said to do. So notice verses 30 and 31. At that time, Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool has been used, nothing touched, as it were, by human hands. Verse 31, And then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. They offered burnt offerings as an acknowledgement of their need for God's forgiveness. And they offer peace offerings as an expression of their reconciliation with God. In other words, God's saying, you're going to come to me offering your sacrifices for forgiveness and for fellowship. And that is the context in which I will deal with you as a forgiven people, as one now in right relationship to me. And in that relationship, we're told then in verse 32... There on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of Israel. This is the first order of business, a public display of the law so the people can read it. Now, I don't know how much he wrote out. We're not told. Probably at least Deuteronomy 27 and most likely all of Deuteronomy. But Joshua wrote out the law of God for the people of God. And then it says that he gathered them in verse 33. All Israel, resident, alien, and citizen alike, with their elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the ark of the Lord's covenant, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses the Lord's servant had commanded earlier concerning blessing the people of Israel. The resident aliens were people like Rahab and her family, those who had joined Israel and swore allegiance to the God of Israel by faith. And then verse 34. Afterward, Joshua read aloud all the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the entire assembly of Israel, including the women, the dependents, and the resident aliens who lived among them. Notice the word all. All the words of all the law were read to all the people, young and old, Israelite and sojourn. This is the complete reading 
He read the good news. He read the bad news. He read the promises. He read the warnings. He read the blessings and the curses. He read the whole word of God for the whole people of God. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We need every part of it. A summary just won't do. You know, our neglect and our ignorance of the word of God, just like Israel's neglect and ignorance of it, is one of the main reasons that we fall into disobedience in the first place. Now, there's a vital relationship between faithful obedience to the word and a heartfelt knowledge of the word. We've got to know our Bible. Do you know your Bible? We're reminded here that it's not military power or human strategy that ultimately matters, but ultimately obedience to the word and the will of God. Hearing God's word is more crucial than fighting God's war. We've got to follow him in obedience and worship. This is to be the first and greatest priority. Okay, so here's the great ceremony. Do you have the scene in your mind? People are all gathered. There's two mountains. Half of Israel on one side, half on the other side. Blessings sound from Mount Gerizim. Curses from Mount Ebal. As the people are reminded of their obligation to obey the Lord and to keep His commandments. It's an incredibly solemn moment. After all, Israel has tasted firsthand the bitterness of divine judgment for disobedience and the sweetness of divine blessings for obedience. They know all about the blessings and the curses. But lest we find the burden of obedience and the threat of the covenant curse overwhelming, look back at verse 30. Isn't that, isn't verse 30 wonderful? Do you see what it's telling us? Before they read the law, before the curses and the blessings were proclaimed, Joshua built an altar. He built an altar on which mountain? Not on Gerizim, the mountain of blessing, but on Ebal, the mountain of curse, the mountain of judgment, the mountain of God's wrath. Do you grasp the symbolism? Do you get the message? What is this? It's the gospel foreshadowed, bright and beautiful. Yes, God curses the disobedience, but a sacrifice has been provided that satisfies the judgment of the Lord. On the mountain of curses, a sacrifice has been made, a peace offering. The curses fall on the substitute that all who repent of their sin and seek the mercy of God might not perish to find life. It's a pointer to the Lord Jesus, isn't it? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why He came. Again, Galatians 3.13, again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so as you trust in Jesus, as you repent of your sin, today you can know for sure there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the curses have fallen on Him. He has absorbed them. He, he has drunk the cup of the wrath without mercy that we might drink the cup of mercy without wrath. There is only now the voice of Mount Gerizim spoken over you, believers in Christ. The blessedness of grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. All the sting of the law that you have broken has been drawn by the wounds of Jesus Christ. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless, Lamb of God was He. Full atonement! Can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior! 
That is the glorious gospel that offers mercy and pardon even to you today as you rest in Jesus. You notice how Joshua is the one that made all the blessings possible in that day. Well, how much more does our standing depend upon a greater Joshua, the Son of God, Jesus Christ? You see, Joshua was only able to bring judgment on sinners and renew the law of Moses. But in Christ, we find the sinless Son of God, who not only brings judgment, but also brings mercy. He brings grace to us through the new covenant and his cross. Christ came not simply to destroy sinners. He came to be destroyed in their place. Jesus, Joshua could only hang Ai's king on the tree. But Jesus volunteered himself and hung himself on the tree. And by becoming a crucified king, by becoming a curse in our place, he pays the penalty for our sins. So that in his resurrection, he could bring us into eternal fellowship with God. And friends, Christ's blood cries out today. It promises you peace with God. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know what he's done for you? Are you trusting in him? Or are you fighting against him? Are you fellowshipping with his people? Or are you fighting against his people? How are you walking with Christ? This is why we worship. This is why we sing about the blood. This is why we take the Lord's Supper. And remember the new covenant that Jesus made by his death and resurrection. This is the foundation of our faith. It is the wellspring of our praise. It is the comfort of our souls. And it is the only way to salvation. God is the source of every victory and blessing through his son, Jesus Christ. So let us worship and obey him and give him the glory, both now and forever. Father, how we thank you for Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our true gospel. Father, how we thank you for the promise of the gospel. Christ, your Son, became a curse on the tree in our place so that we might receive the blessing that he earned in his perfect life. Father, how we thank you for that great exchange. How we thank you for the cross that upholds your righteousness and your justice. And that promises us that you are also a justifier. That you justify the wicked by faith in the Son. Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray that you would open their eyes to see their need for a substitute. That you would open their eyes to see how Christ paid it all. Open their eyes to see their sin and their need before you, a holy God, and that you would lead them to salvation. And Father, for those who know you, I pray that you would strengthen our faith today, that you would be glorified in our praise. And ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.